struggled with with fundraising. We had one VC that said, if you move back and stay in, in our backyard in San Francisco, we'll, you know, we'll, um, we'll fund. But I didn't want to do that. I didn't think it was right for the business. So, you know, we didn't end up moving forward. But it just felt like, okay, I can keep hitting my head against the wall is what it felt like at the time. Keep kind of pushing with that and trying different iterations. Or I can, you know, as a salesperson, I can focus on selling this and moving the business forward with revenue. And I can do that and keep owning more of the business. This is Get Shit Done a podcast that dives into how women entrepreneurs are gaining traction and growing companies that scale generational impact. Each episode is real talk from women founders who have successfully scaled companies. You'll learn what they did to grow, how they did it, and the tools they used to get it done so you can too. To get access to more episodes of Get Shit Done, along with free traction tools, Head on over to shegetshitdone.com. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done podcast, queens and comrades. I'm your host, Alex Spatdorf, a.k.a. Chief Get Shit Done Officer. Did you know that women own nearly half of businesses, but we only generate 4% of total business revenues? That's why our motto is fuck 4%. Our goal here every week is to teach you traction strategies and tactics with the tools and templates you need to get shit done and grow on your own terms to scale generational impacts. Today, we will be breaking down how Heather Udo, founder of Shoppable, was able to scale a multi-million dollar company by putting profit first. Shoppable is a suite of e-commerce products that integrate into digital content to drive conversions. Heather will teach you how she was able to bootstrap to a multi-million dollar profitable company that recently raised $3 million after securing their own bag through sales. Yep, if you're an OG, get shit done queen or comrade, you already know. Our saying is sell or die. So here's what you're going to learn from Heather. How to make selling central to your role as founder, even if you're not a natural salesperson. Hint, if you have relationships, you know how to do sales. We'll get into that. How to avoid distractions and sell what's aligned with the vision and meaning your vision. It's important. How to move down market. We'll get into that. And mastering the show me it's real approach. And this will help you get the intros you need by getting people to believe in you, the real you. Because as we said on the show before, that's what people are investing in. And the final thing we'll dive into is how scaling profitability enabled her company to secure $3 million in funding. But that was later after they already scaled the company to profitability. And she'll also touch on how you can survive fundraising PTSD. It's real, y'all. But before we get started, we need your support. To help our team show up and support you on your scaling journey, week after week, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Better yet, share it with a friend. This helps you know when episodes drop every week and tells the algorithms to find more queens like you that we can support too. Also, if you want our weekly Get Shit Done traction briefings that break down every single episode with key takeaways, free resources, templates, and tools, head on over to shegetshitdone.com slash join so we can slide up in your inbox so we can help you get it done weekly. And without further ado, Queen Heather Udo. Heather, welcome to Get Shit Done. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited for her to be here and dive into her business, which is in a fashion tech space, which was, as many of you know, my former life. Um, but we're going to uncover some really dope things that she's done in her business. But before we dive on in, like we do with all of our guests, um, I always like to go back to what you were doing before. I think context matters so much um, in terms of what informs your trajectory as an entrepreneur. So yeah, Heather, what were you doing before you even started Shoppable? Yes, before Shoppable, I was um, on the founding team of another entrepreneur's startup. So I joined a company called Affinity Labs uh, based in San Francisco and um, joined it from the time it was a PowerPoint until 
um, we ended up exiting and selling to monster.com, Monster Worldwide. And there I did, because it was a PowerPoint when I joined, I mean, there was no company, there was nothing, there's nothing built. Um, I did everything from market research to business development. And then I did sales. And after I sold something, I did account management and, you know, ad operations and sales strategy and all, like all of, all of those things. <laughs> I feel like that's the ongoing story of like most entrepreneurs. Like we did all the things. Um, one of my <laughs> favorite books is range. And it talks about how like generalists are going to rule the world because, um, a lot of things we were told, like, I mean, decades ago, being a specialist was a really big deal, like go into accounting, be a doctor. But a lot of those functions are being automated from technology now. But what yeah. technology can never automate is creativity and holistic kind of strategy, um, which I think when you have that experience of doing many different things, like some of my favorite mm -hmm. founders have dabbled in like things that don't seem to add up, but they end up adding up. <laughs> so I love yeah. that. Yeah, I love that. So yeah. with Shoppable, what led you there? You went from being in this startup that gets acquired. Um, and why now are we pivoting over to the fashion tech world? Yeah. So I think separately, I'd always wanted to, to start a business and build something from nothing, have a profitable business. And that those were like my long-term life goals. Um, but I had... Um, you know, I made the decision out of college and actually took that job while I was still in college. I hadn't graduated yet, um, but took it and then started working there. And it gave me that kind of just knowledge and confidence of what it's like to start a business. So what actually, you know, putting that together, what um, caused me to start Shoppable was after that exit from the first company, I moved um, into my first one bedroom where I didn't have any roommates and I was able to, to live alone. And it um, meant that I had to decorate an entire apartment by myself and figure out how to make it look like a home. So um, in that experience, like, you know, from a consumer standpoint, I had an experience that like 99% of people have out there, which is you discover an amazing product, you want to buy it. And if you're not on a retailer's website, you can't. So then you either try to guess, you know, the brand that made it or the designer that would make it. You, you know, check one website, you know, it's not there. You check another one, it's not there. Maybe you go into Google, search for it, it's not there. And in any way, so I had that experience repeatedly to the point where I was sitting at my computer, um, literally my credit card by the keyboard. And I'm like, I feel like the retailers don't want my money. It's so frustrating. I'm trying to buy this product. Somebody has it in stock and I can't find it. And, you know, it was so frustrating. And, you know, instead of just saying whatever and moving on from it, I said, you know, of course the retailers want my money, but, you know, in this experience, like everybody's like, nobody's winning, you know, the consumer as you know, me as a consumer, I didn't get my product. The retailer didn't get, you know, the sale and the website I was on didn't earn commission for creating amazing demand generating content. And so if all three of us are, are losing, then how, you know, it, is there something we can do to make this a win for everybody? And that's really what, you know, where I, you know, you usually see a problem. There's also an opportunity if you kind of take a different lens to it. So that's what I did where I realized, okay, there seems to be an opportunity for someone to create uh, technology that you can allow people to shop, out, you know, anywhere online outside of a retailer's website. And, um, you know, and then of course I thought, okay, can Amazon do this? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they, um, you, after giving it a lot of thought, I realized, okay, this is something they can't do. And it needed to be someone that was retailer agnostic. So, um, you know, why not me? <laughs> Essentially is where it came from. I love this because it goes back to that connecting the dots. Some of my my favorite companies have always, I feel like every founder has that moment where everything comes together because of collection of experiences. It wasn't necessarily that you were in that field before. It's like, this is the problem that I want to solve. Like that was very similar right. for me to get shit done. I always tell people, if you would have told me three years ago that I would be building a social impact company with like a function of community on it, I would be like, the fuck out of here. There's no way. Like, I don't, what does that even mean? Um, 
but it was from a collection of experiences. And when you and I talked before, just about kind of your journey and what we wanted to, to talk about today, mm-hmm. you know, you reminded me so much of a lot of conversations we've had on the show. And now that we kind of see so many patterns, one of them is focus. And another thing is mm-hmm. the ability to get focus is through ongoing listening, active listening yeah. to your customer, like something, a theme that we're, we're talking to our founders about in our sixth cohort of the accelerator happening right now is teaching our founders, you know, how do you get to traction? Cause it's so easy to hide behind a product and say, look at all these features that are here when no one asked you for it. You didn't validate why you built it out. You don't even know. You just think it's cool, but you didn't really build alongside your customer. And so that's something you said you did really well is like you listen to potential customers and their needs to fine tune the business. So can you walk us through what that looked like in the early stages of the business? Yeah, absolutely. So initially when I started the company, I thought that, you know, I kind of thought about it as, um, you know, shoppable as a destination site that was essentially everything but Amazon. So we, you know, partner with all the major retailers, we partner with all of the D2C brands and create a universal checkout experience. And then we would partner with all of the other websites out there. So they would have one, you know, a single unified, um, you know, place to, to, for the, their shoppers to, to check out no matter what they discovered. And, you know, really I was taking what the current experience was and making it better, but I wasn't taking it far enough. And I didn't know that until I started, um, you know, until I first started and um, brought it out there and started having the conversation. So um, in um, shortly after we launched, and this is something that I will tell everyone. So people are very secretive about what they're building and their startups and like, oh, I can't, I'm starting something, but I can't tell you, don't do that. <laughs> um, you know, almost all of the time you are doing yourself, you know, a disservice because that person could have helped you, you know, and maybe wanted to help you and could have that one connection and intro that could change everything. And that's really what happened for me is I, you know, was like, I'm going to tell everyone what I'm doing. And, um, you know, it's really ultimately about execution. And um, someone that I had met um, from someone I knew in the tech industry said, there's this other entrepreneur. She's also in the fashion space in New York. You guys should get together. And I said, sure, why not? And anyway, she introduced me to um, uh, uh, an executive at um, Condé Nast. And I took that meeting, you know, going in thinking I'm going to pitch them on this, my initial concept. And I did. And they said, this is all, this is like, that's interesting. And we'd be interested in that. But what we really want is to have your checkout on our website. So can we license it? And to me, I immediately thought, okay, licensing my technology out is not what the business is. But it also made me think that it, what, it, what I'm hearing is that we created something that's a, that's a little bit better than what they have and they will take it and they like it, but that it would be probably short-lived before we'd be replaced um, with someone that's really solving the need. So what I decided to do and, you know, in, in startups, you don't have a lot of time. So you have to, um, you have to think quickly and, you know, you have to be decisive. And um, so I gave myself, I think it was 30 days to decide um, and you also actually just to, to rewind, you have to, you know, you touched on this earlier is about focus, like you have to be so focused. So if I knew if I said yes to licensing it, that would be a huge distraction from actually, you know, the core of what I wanted to do too. So I'm like, I have to decide, am I going to switch from being, you know, um, B to C to being B to B and then just straight licensing it and becoming a software business. And so I gave myself those 30 days and I said, I'm going to look into it. I'm going to uh, talk to more companies. I'm going to play it out, model it out, see what you know the business model could look like. And at the end of 30 days, I've got to make a decision one way or the other. And you know, so I set up meetings with a bunch of other media companies and um, you know, just other potential customers and um, pitched them on you know kind of both ideas and getting their feedback. And it became crystal clear that it was, you know, it was an even bigger idea and has much bigger potential. 
and even more innovative to look at it from a standpoint of a, of, of a technology software company and going B2B. So that's ultimately what we decided to do. And, um, you know, I had all those conversations with a PowerPoint. So, you know, we took, we didn't have any, we had, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, consumer facing website built, but it couldn't, we don't want to sell that. So we ended up using the PowerPoint to pitch the new idea and seeing what kind of traction we got before, you know, officially making the, the switch. I love this. It reminds me of something I saw yesterday, Sophia Moroso posted, and she's, I give her a lot of credit, very vocal about the fuck ups she's made. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, she listed a few mistakes she sees founders making. And she was like, you know, we get so fixated on our ideas um, that we're not willing to listen to the people we're trying mm -hmm. to serve. And right. if we're here trying to create and solve a problem for them. It's a disservice to ourselves and them to try to build something that we, you know, that is so beyond what they actually wanted or needed. And it reminds me of even my first company. I think I got out of my own way because a mentor for my mm -hmm. first company, it was right at that idea stage. And I was really secretive about it. His name is Bob Rosenberg from University of Chicago. And he was like, Alex, look, like the, no one cares about your idea. <laughs> like no one's going to steal your idea because at the end of the day, like, like you said, execution is everything. And he, he mm -hmm. also made a good point. He was like, most people are fucking lazy. They're lazy. They're not going to be able to a put it up as quickly as you. And even if they were, the difference is that no one can take your experiences away and the knowledge that you have. So maybe they do create something, but it could never be what you're going to create because you're, experiences and the way you approach it are so, so completely different. So I'm so happy you talked about that because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, if you're not listening to your customer and building, you know, with them, there's just no point of you even continuing forward. And something right. that's really hard is as you're growing, how do you continue doing that and not get complacent or fall into the expert kind of bucket? Um, it's so easy. Like I think of companies who had vast market share back in the day, Kodak. Great example. Mm -hmm. The inventor got pretty complacent saying, we know like, you know, people want physical photos and he just would not listen to the direction of digital saying, we're not going to go there. And they just got completely pummeled. And so mm -hmm. in your case, how are you implementing these ongoing frameworks to ensure that no matter how far along the company comes, you're not getting complacent where you're not listening anymore and thinking you're the expert. And that's really hard to do when you are like, we have it figured out. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think it's tough. I mean, you, I feel like that's the sort of thing where you don't know if you're doing it right until you're, you, you know, you're Kodak and you realize, wait a minute, I missed, <laughs> I missed the boat. But I think for, you know, for, for us, it's it's a balance because you know you know especially with a software as a service you have to you have to balance like creating uniformity and scalability with um you know with innovation and um you know and and you know customer service customer success so we try to you know we do quarterly business reviews with our customers and i try to attend as many of those as i can and you know that's a great opportunity to hear what customers are looking for and you know what they like what they don't like what's important to them and you know and if you know and through even like um rfp processes it's always interesting to see who you know who else is being included in those processes and you know getting the attention of the same types of businesses to kind of take that into consideration too for what they're looking for and um you know, and then I also try to just randomly reach out to customers of different types and have one on one conversations with them, you know, not the most scalable thing, but I think it's really important to do that because, you know, and I usually set them up with like, all, like, pretty much no agenda, I just want to talk, see how their experiences, what do they love? What do they not like? What, you know, is anything painful to them? Is anything frustrating is, um, you know, what can you do better? So those types of things are really how we try to stay, um, you know, stay in tune with what, you know, what our customers are looking for and even what our, you know, new um, prospects are, are looking for as well. This is really important because I think that it's so easy to get in this trap of, and 
I see this with companies as they're getting bigger and bigger. It's let's automate everything. Let's so it can be scale, scale, scale. But the problem is like there's certain pieces of the business that should not be automated because you need to be listening. Um, and I think that's where you dilute the value of that human interaction. I'm like, at the end of the day, technology will never replace humans and what we can forge by those connections. And being able to have those constant conversations is so important because once you take that away, what are you solving for? Um, mm-hmm. So I love that. Have you ever heard of um, the pro- like a internal product advisory for your customers? Uh, like a like a uh, a board or like a customer board is that what you mean yeah so this was from this past week so one of my friends from um undergrad he's one of the co-founders of ship up so they raised like a series e recently and they're like a mm-hmm. nine figure dollar business and he was talking to our, our tribe about um how they keep listening to their customers hmm. and he made a really interesting point about how even at nine figures like we created these um, customer product advisory boards. Mm-hmm. So throughout different sections of the business too. So they will like even fly customers out and like work alongside them and just get all this meaningful data. And I thought it was genius. And it mm-hmm. kind of sounds like there's, that's a form of it that you're doing, but that's shit that can't scale. Yeah. But I don't think oh, yeah. it needs to. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I think, it, and that's something that our, um, my head of, of customer success is, is working on doing that and just kind of pulling customers that feel, um, you know, not only feel comfortable sharing, you know, those types of things, but can also help each other learn and, you know, grow, you know, be able to grow their business and get value from each other as well. So yeah, we're not doing exactly that yet, but, um, but yeah, we've heard the same thing and, and they're, are planning on, on trying that out as well. I mean, they're like massive. I think you're doing like the bare minimum. You're doing more than the bare minimum. But like for founders who are early on, like I can't fly anyone out. It's just that constant. Like, how can you talk to your customers as often as possible? Even it's just an email. Um, So that's amazing that you're already doing that in your own way. And when we originally spoke, something that just stood out to me, another theme I keep seeing around founders who have successfully scaled is not just the focus and listening, um, but also sell, sell, sell. Selling, selling, selling. The best founders are selling their asses off at every single stage. And you made a really good point. You're like, we took a selling over fundraising approach, even though you did end up fundraising. So can you walk us through what did you mean by that? And how do you incorporate that in your company, not only today, but since the beginning? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think, I think, you know, for, for us, we initially didn't set out to, 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 to focus on that. And I think, you know, I came from, I went to school in San Francisco and, and I mentioned that I, you know, worked at a startup immediately out of college. So I was, you know, deep in, you know, the tech community out there, like everyone I knew um, was, you know, was in the community and they're really, um, you know, was this idea that, you know, you could like throw a rock and a VC would catch it and give you $10 million kind of thing that it was like so easy. Everybody raises money. That's, you know, there wasn't even a thought that there was another way to start a business um, outside of that. And, you know, and, and even like listening to conferences, you always would hear, I'd always hear people talk about, well, go out, you know, here's what you do. You go out, you raise a bunch of money you know, choose who to, you know, be picky about who you, you know, who you select and all these things that make it sound like it's, you know, they're just, you know, you know, handing out money or, you know, to anyone that asks for it. And that was definitely not my experience. And, um, you know, initially in fundraising, I um, had shortly after starting the business, I moved from San Francisco to New York. And, um, you know, we had, we struggled with, with fundraising. And, you know, we had, um, you know, one VC that said, if you move back and stay in, in our backyard in San Francisco, we'll, you know, we'll, um, we'll fund, but I didn't want to do that. I didn't think it was right for the business. So, you know, we didn't end up moving forward. And I realized, you know, in having, you know, numerous other conversations that um, it just wasn't, it wasn't, I don't know, you know what I was doing or if the business, the timing, you know, 
the, the traction, all of the details really early on. But it just felt like, okay, I can, you know, keep, you know, hitting my head against the wall is what it felt like at the time. And, you know, keep kind of pushing with that and trying different iterations. Or I can, you know, as a salesperson, I can focus on selling this and moving the business forward with revenue. And I can do that and keep owning more of the business. So that's really what what I did is start focus on selling. We, um, you know, when we secured pay, you know, our first launch, our first, yeah, our launch partner was actually a paid partner. So for every single thing we did, we didn't do anything for free. Everything was paid. There were no free freebies. And we used revenue to, to fund the business and, you know, and to get us to enough traction that then I was able to start raising, um, you know, some um, seed money to, you know, further grow the team and, and be able to, to move on from there. What's, what I love about this so much is I think this conversation doesn't have happen enough in the startup space is that we see these raises and we just think, hey, they went from idea on a napkin to all of a sudden they have millions of dollars in funding. Mm -hmm. And I will hear this argument very often of people saying, well, that does happen. And I'm like, okay, there's two different things that usually happen here. If someone is getting funded off of an idea, um, A, it's coming from friends and family. That's a completely different beast. That's a wealth conversation that is outside of this. But if it's institutional, capital. Mm -hmm. That's typically because the founder has had a successful exit. Like the investors are investing in that person. Like I think of the guys mm -hmm. from Instacart, their first, their first startup failed, but they were able to successfully raise for the next because the investor said, Hey, we like you, right? We were, right. we're buying into your vision and focusing on the selling piece is so huge. Like every founder I hear or, or talk to always goes back to this where they're like, man, if I would have known how important sales are, I would have probably focused more on sales as long as possible. Right. Because you're now, like when you bring on investors, you're now managing too. You're managing expectations, people, all these other oh, yeah. things. Um, so I love that. So when you, when we originally spoke to you, you talked so much about being prop, like having that profitable yeah. first mindset, which Again, in this space, so often we're just go fast, break things, da 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 da. But at some point, this needs to become a sustainable business, right? And having that in the back of your mind, saying there's going to be times where that can't be the option, but we need to get there at some point. Mm -hmm. And going back to the the sales conversation, you talked about going to those enterprise businesses, like you already alluded to, mm -hmm. um, before going down market. And I think this is so so important because I hear from founders all the time who have big visions and they want to serve everybody, but it's okay. just like, how can we get enough business in, in so we can fund and then serve those people. So can you walk us through what did that look like in terms of getting into enterprise businesses before going down market? And then what did it look like to actually go down market once the enterprise side was going doing well? Yeah, great, great question. So, yeah, so for us, we had to, um, you know, we focused on, on on revenues and getting to profitability as soon as we can. And, um, you know, and we've been now we've been profitable for five consecutive years. So, um, you know, it's it's working. And we we started, you know, everyone wants to, like you said, everyone wants to. Um, be everything to everyone. And we do too. You know, I, there's so many applications for our technology that is not, you know, obvious to most people. And we don't put it on the website and things like that, because you, you know, if you try to be everything to everyone, you're going to be nothing to no one, you know, and no one will feel like, okay, I can be, I get what you're doing. And this is like the right technology or the right service for me. And what, you know, so what we realized we had to do is, focus on revenue and focus on the companies that could really, that had enough, um, you know, were big enough where they would also be willing to pay up front. So we had, you know, um, decided strategically, we're going to focus on enterprise businesses that, um, you know, will, you know, pay up front for the whole year, they'll sign long-term contracts. And, um, you know, and we'll have fewer customers, but they will be big customers and that will, we'll be able to grow until we have, 
you know, a substantial base of those types of customers that were able to then start to move down, down market. And that's really been, um, been our path in being able to get the company to where we are today and not, you know, and not focused on trying to push too fast on, like I said, on, on trying to be everything to everyone when, you know, all of the different segments and um, types of businesses are not all going to necessarily be, they're, they're just not all worth the same, you know, the same to, to, to your business. So we have to take that into consideration as well. And, um, you know, and we've done different testing behind the scenes, you know, not publicly with different size companies to, to learn, you know, back to your point about listening to your customers to try to understand with, with, with those customers, would they use the technology in the same way? What would their needs be if we decided to open it up to, you know, a level, you know, smaller company to mid-market or to SMB and use those all as learning points before we start moving uh, more down, our, down market. This is so, so important because something I, I'll say often to founders is niche is sexy, and you actually like you need to think it's sexy because you can't afford to not be niche in the beginning. You just can't. Right. You don't have the resources. Like your competitor is not Amazon. Amazon will eat you. <laughs> like from in the beginning, <laughs> they will eat you alive. They have all the money in the world right now. So I think of even like when Netflix started, Blockbuster mm-hmm. could have eaten them alive. But oh, yeah. they were like, we are go- we are focusing right here and. I mean, over time, as I got bigger, Black, Blockbuster, Blockbuster was trying to eat them, but they were like, nope, we're not going to react. We're just going to stay here. And then ultimately, Blockbuster kind of defeated themselves, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. Um, but even with Get Shit Done, I know I'm like, as many women founders that I want to serve with this company, we will literally turn away women who are at launch stage. We're not helping you launch a business. Here are some great resources already doing it, but we know who we're most passionate about serving right now and who needs it the most because women are stuck at 4%. I'm not interested in adding more women in a pipeline when the women already here are stuck. It just, it drives me crazy. So our niche is, nope, we don't do, we don't do anything launch and it has to be a scalable business. That's what we do well now. And then later we can talk about what does it look like to go across categories so when you yeah. look at those enterprise businesses, because I think this is something really hard for, for founders is how do you get into the door mm-hmm. of these companies? I mean, that's one of the best, like even investors, they love B2B because you're getting larger contracts, longer time. It's just a little more money coming in where you're not trying to get one-off sales. What did that look like for you in the beginning of getting the, into the door of those businesses and ultimately getting the yes as well. Mm-hmm. Great question. So for um, for for me, my strategy, um, you know, other than you know the obvious stuff, my strategy um, was really kind of start by um, expanding my network. So I mentioned I moved to New York. I didn't know anyone but one person, one salesperson that I used to work with, right? Um, so I expanded my network and I focused on building out you know, an incredible advisory board of advisors that are well-connected people and would be able to make a lot of those early introductions. So, you know, we have um, just a great uh, advisory board, but a couple of people on it that really helped. Um, So Alexandra Wilkes-Wilson is one of the co-founders of Guilt Group. And, you know, for for us, she introduced us to so many brands and retailers and in you know, the very beginning of the business to kind of help get that part of, of the business going, get those meetings and, um, you know, and D Solomon on our, you know, publishing side of our advisory board introduced us to like name a publisher. She set up the meeting and got, you know, got me in front of them. So that strategy worked really, really well. Um, and if you're trying to get in touch with an advisor and you're, and, you know, if you're someone that is thinking about, you know, taking that approach to, um, you know, people are so accessible now, like with social media, very accessible. And even, you know, um, conferences and events and things like that. It's like, there's, a, I guess, fewer events right now, but I didn't know Alexandra, but I knew she was going to be attending a breakfast event in New York. So I'm like, I'm going to go there. I'm going to find her. I'm going to pitch her. <laughs> and that was, you know, my first goal. 
and it, so I think it's about finding like what are the right steps and, and then finding steps that are scalable because of course you can one-to-one cold email you know cold dm cold tweet you know whatever it is cold call each you know each individual um, company that you want to get in touch with but if you get that warm intro and you find a way to, to get there that way you're coming in with more credibility and more attention um, immediately and some of those first meetings had you know 12 people in it which you know it can be a little overwhelming for an early early entrepreneur you're like okay this is better results than i was expecting <laughs> but i think that's that's what worked really well for for us this is top of mind for me because this is something um some of our founders have been talking about within our tribe is they're probably thinking you you know Alexander Wilkes, like, how, how did you even, and you said, well, I went to this conference, um, mm-hmm. then I was able to get in. And, you know, there's some people that might be listening saying, I don't even have connections to these people. And let's say they're not even in, in New York, like we yeah. are. Oh, yeah. I, I would say we definitely have access because New York is a different beast, right? What would be your advice for people that might not be in areas? Because you said they're more accessible, but I think we're so bombarded with emails now. People are exhausted by Zoom. Like it's what makes it sticky when those people don't know who you are and you might not have that warm intro initially, because I'm sure there's some folks that initially you didn't have a warm intro. Yeah. Um, but what made, what were some things that you did well that made it sticky for those people to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take a shot. I'm going to give Heather a mm-hmm. chance. I think part of it is, you know, because I'm now on the receiving end of some of these things. I think part of it is you have, um, if it's coming through email or DM or tweet or whatever it is, you have, you have to be, um, you have to be quick and like straight and to the point, but also kind of find a way to show value and appreciation, um, and um, and that you're serious too, because I think sometimes you see if you don't have um, you know, if you, you're sending emails from a Gmail and you don't actually have your your own like company domain set up and, you know, like little things like that kind of will signal, okay, this person's, they're, they're not real yet. They're not, they haven't gotten serious enough to spend that $10 to get the domain and, and set up their email. So if, you know, do all of those things to be real and, and you know, don't say, don't reach out too soon and kind of waste that opportunity. You want to make sure that your timing is, I think is right. So do, you know, everything, you know, do what you can to, to get started and, and um, show that it's a real business and you're putting your own time into that business before you ask someone else to invest their time in it too. And I think that's, that's what I would suggest before you start reaching out and just making sure that you've, you time it properly when you're ready for it too, because you, yeah, I think you can, a lot of people probably ask too soon um, before you've done enough on your own to, to say, Hey, I've been working really hard on this. This is where we're at. We work with this company or maybe we don't work with this company yet, but um, here's a link to, you know, a blog post that I wrote about, you know, the market or, you know, whatever it is that you can share, you can share to, to show that you're real. I love that because it's it's something we even have our founders do when we they get matched with mentors. It's we let them know like just as valuable your time is ev- the most valuable asset for everyone is time. Right. And when you show like you're talking about, I like the show that you're real. Is how are you getting to the point? How are you showing like what's the intention here, and why should this matter to me? And if you can be very intentional and say, this is why I'm reaching out to you. And then give them a little bit of context versus just saying, Hey, my name is so on and so forth. I get emails like this. I would just love to connect, but I don't, but why? Because you're asking me to connect where I have X, I have a huge network of a tribe that we're serving right now. And that's time away from them. That's time away also from my 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 family, my friends, my partner. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. why am I going to create space for you? I love that. Show me that it's real. Ooh, I love that. Put it on a shirt. So I think this also loops into um, fundraising. So you have in the last four years, five years, gotten to profitability. You raised about $3 million to date. Um, 
walk us through what do you think you've done really well to close checks that you would recommend other women do? I So I think part of it is you kind of touched on, on, on this is for, you know, your first rounds, you're really selling, you know, you're selling yourself, your re- reputation, your idea, you like, you know, a, a little bit less so the, the idea, but your, you know, your ability. And I think that that's, you know, that's something that you have to make sure you can get across is like that you are someone that like your drive and your focus and your ambition and, um, you know, and those types of things. Like I've had multiple investors and, and maybe this is that ne- maybe this is a negative, but, you know, I've had a couple investors say early on when they first wrote the checks and um, that, you know, they felt like I don't quite get like even like I don't quite get e-commerce and like the you know some of the the details of 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 that business but I get you and I I can tell from you know my interactions with you that you're going to succeed and you're like whether like you the business evolves slightly over time it's this exact business or something different like you're going to succeed and you're going to like and it's going to be worth my investment so a lot of it kind of you know or in the early stage comes down to um, you know, to that relationship and to being able to showcase that, you know, you're someone that doesn't give up. And, you know, we, um, every startup is going to go through the highs and the lows and, oh my gosh, the lows are so extremely low that you have to be someone that can push through that. And I think when you can showcase to an, to an investor that you're not going to just give up because you reached an op, you know, some obstacle or something was inconvenient or, you know, a partnership didn't work out or whatever it may be, you know, you lost a deal um, that, you know, it's just so important to be able to showcase that. I think that's, that's something that has, you know, really helped us. This is across the board and any type of relationship building capacity, whether it's investors, um, even B2B partnerships. Like if you're getting a client, like people invest in people, we just brought on mm-hmm a new team member who's um, part of our comrades effort. So we don't call them partnerships. We say comrades and something, you know, she and I were talking about is like at the end of the day, people are going to invest in you. So when you're going out to talk about get shit done, you are direct reflection of that. And so it's so easy going back to the founders. So often hiding behind their ideas and their products. Mm -hmm. That's so cheap though. Is that even when I left my last company and before I even started Get Shit Done, I had investors saying, Alex, you want to check? They didn't even know what I was doing next. But they they were just like, I know whatever you're going to do is there's going to be a win. Somewhere is going to be a win. And I think that also goes back to what you were talking about with Mm -hmm. getting those advisors, getting those mentors, those relationships when you might not have that inroad in. Maybe your background's not corporate America is that people see you and that passion and they want to invest in you. I think, you know, when, like in the early days, because for us, we, we, one of the struggles that we had was that we were early to, you know, there was no such thing as universal checkout. There was no Instagram checkout. There was no, you know, um, shopping on Google. There um, was no purchasing products anywhere, but an e-commerce, you know, a straight e-commerce site. So we were so early to this space that, you know, we um, had to teach everybody about what a universal checkout was, what the capabilities are, what the potential is, what the value points are. So we're teaching our publishers, we're teaching retail partners, DTC partners, and then we're trying to teach investors like all at the same time. And in any way, so we realized that, okay, this is going to be, it's going to take longer to get to where we want to go. We're still without a doubt convinced like that we were on the right track, but we just knew it was going to take longer. So we kind of, you know, so I think it, it helped to be able to lean into other points, um, other points of traction and, and you know, proof points um, like, you know, having, um, you know, you have great team members, having great advisory board, having early, um, you know, a great kind of banner early customers and then having, you know, interested, you know, a long list of pipeline of great, you know, brands. Um, that people have heard of that are interested as well, even though, you know, other things might be taking a little bit slower than you want. It's like, okay, so, you know, you, you can kind of, um, you can kind of um, 
you know, focus in attention on like other things, like, yeah, not everything, like nothing's going to be perfect too, which I think is important to say is that, you know, and I think, you know, we women in particular also try to like want everything to be perfect and to go a certain way and be exactly like, okay, I want to have, you know, the business at this point and at this thing going on and and all this stuff. And then I'm going to go raise or whatever. And there's really never a perfect time as much as you want to be able to control everything and, and those types of things. So it's about, you know, what's the story you're telling and what are the positives you can lean into to showcase that it's going to be a good investment. And, you know, make sure you communicate why it's a good investment for them too, because ultimately they're there for, you know, for that reason. Yeah. This reminds me of what you said about show me that it's real, like the receipts. And it's not saying that you have to have millions of dollars in the bank. It's just saying, how can you paint a picture of what this could be? So people can Mm -hmm. get on board. They can be excited. Like even before Get Shit Done had a website, we had gotten on board just from networking I was able to say, hey, we have now like 200 different experts. This, we didn't have a website. It was just me reaching out to people every single day. I was at a coffee shop, just reaching out saying, here's our mission. Here's why it's important. And then getting yeses and nos. And thankfully, got more yeses than nos in it. And then I was able to go into partners and founders and say, this is what we built. Um, still didn't have a website. So I, I, I love that approach. But there's also a lot of things that many of us who have raised, actually all of us have raised, um, we have fucked up on. So what are some things that you didn't do so well in the fundraising process that mm. you advise women entrepreneurs to avoid doing? Oh, I mean, so one thing um, in particular, and you know, maybe I'm the only person in the world that, that didn't know this, but when I first started raising, Again, you know, coming from the Valley, all of the conversations were about, you know, like closing these massive rounds. And when I was first, you know, pitching investors, you start getting people like committed. So you have 50K here, 25K there, you know, and and that kind of thing. And and I didn't know about convertible notes. And I had a great, I I thought I had a great lawyer at the time. Um, We don't work with the person anymore, but, um, but never mentioned. So he said, well, let me know when you get, you know, you've got everybody all, you know, circled and, you know, then we'll do it. And in any way, I didn't know about convertible notes. So over like several months, as I'm trying to like herd, <laughs> herd the cattle together to, to be able to close the round. In the meantime, I, you know, in some cases I lost early investors because they ended up, you know, deciding to invest in something that was a little too tangential that came up in the meantime and just move faster and you know or you know something else happened and they just didn't have they just invested in something unrelated and now they're you know they can't invest anymore for whatever reason so we you know we lost some investors um because of that and it also took longer because i wasn't i wasn't you know i could have been closing along the way by issuing convertible notes and then just waiting to convert on a on a later round. So once I started doing that, it became way easier and easier to raise, like you know, you know, throughout the next couple of years um, by continuing to issue convertible notes. It really, really simplified the process for us, and that's what ended up being um, ended up working really well for us. But um, I messed it up at the beginning. So if, you know, anyone's out there, you know, definitely think about uh, leaning into the idea of a convertible notes. And I don't even say like, I think that's just a ecosystem failure is that like the financial side and the legal side of things are just not structured in a way that is mm-hmm. accessible. It's, it's, it's not that it's not accessible, but it's not as digestible. Uh, and so there's a knowledge gap often. And uh, thank goodness in my former company where we did raise, we had a, a great freaking lawyer. I don't know how many times yeah. convertible notes saved our ass, but I could see us like missing out, like you said, if we didn't have that in place. But there's just not enough um, in that space yet to make it understandable to most founders. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that you were able to figure that out. But I always love asking founders this that we interview in general, since you've been scaling this company is, do you think that was the biggest mistake that you made? That was one of your greatest mm. lessons 
Or do you think there's something else that has been a, a better lesson for you? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, it was definitely, you know, that was definitely one of one of the lessons. I think, you know, I think another one is probably to be um, again, it depends upon how you want to run your business. Like you can run your business a lot of different types of ways. And part of it is going to be set by whether or not you do raise venture capital, because they're going to want you to run it, you know, a very specific way um, or else. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I think it, I think it kind of depends, but for, for me, you know, when I kind of think, think back about a lot of it, one thing that I would do I would do differently is be more aggressive in certain, you know, in certain points, especially right after you, you raise, I think I had a little like PTSD of having no money for so long at the beginning that I was like, you suddenly have money in the bank and you're like, I can't spend it. You oh know? my God. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think I actually heard that Oprah is still afraid of like being broke that she like is, you know, you know, billionaire now, but afraid of not having money again. And, you know, I think I kind of did felt that way after just being like traumatized of all these like near no cash experiences in the early days. Um, at the very beginning, no cash. Um, that when I would, that when I did close it, I don't think I was aggressive enough in that period afterwards. Um, so I would say that that's probably, that's probably one, um, you know, one thing. And then the other piece is, is someone that has focused on profitability. You know, we've grown, um, we've grow the business with our profits and continue to invest, you know, and invest back in the business that way. And, um, you know, one thing that is probably, maybe it's obvious to other people, but it's just um, hiring more, um, you know, hiring more people that are part-time, that are contractors, you know, can really, really, massively help your business when you, you know, you can't yet afford a full-time name that position or two full-time name that position, have one full-time and one part-time or whatever you may need. But I think, um, you know, we probably also didn't do enough of that in the earlier days because, you know, I don't, I, I don't know, maybe it's just being too focused on traditional, some traditional thinking. And, um, now there are just so many, you know, um, great platforms out there that make it much, much easier to quickly connect with experts in different fields uh, to, to help you grow from there. Yeah. The hiring thing we hear about often, and I think that also goes back to what you said around the investment piece that we see a lot. She just spoke to a founder I want to introduce you to who has scaled her company quite a bit. Um, and she's recently gotten some funding and she's just like, I, I feel kind of stuck because I'm scared that I'm going to fuck it up, basically. So what helped you get over that? Because I, I truly believe women, we are naturally good at money. Like 80% of purchase decisions are because of us. That's we know right. how to handle money. But for some messed up reason, it's helping it work for us. So obviously, it seems like you got over that hurdle of you know, being more aggressive, what helped you to start being more aggressive on where you made investments in the business for growth? I think part of it is for, for me is looking at the data and having, you know, for us now having history and knowing, okay, you, you, you know, it's, it's almost like an, and yeah, I, I don't, I don't know what this is, um, you know, what this ties, ties back to, but, um, you know, you can be more confident when you know, like I've done it and, 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 um, that we've been able to, to, to manage it properly. And, um, and I think that has, um, you know, I think it helped also to get for us, we have a really great strategic financial advisor now that, um, you know, is very, very focused on cash flow and, um, you know, we meet every um, quarterly, runs really great reports and kind of plans, you know, plans out financials, but in a very realistic um, manner. So that also, I think, really helps me feel, feel um, always feel confident in what we're doing in our plans and, and incorporating, you know, um, you know, budgets and kind of additional, um, 
opportunities of what we want to do. So we want to spend more on marketing. We need to, we want to hire more people right now and invest in, um, you know, invest in this thing over here, whatever it may be, but really just looking at, at the data um, and planning <laughs> is, is ultimately yes. what helps me feel a lot more comfortable. It reminds me of what Michelle Huey, who we interviewed as well, said. She said, data, mm-hmm. not drama. Data, yes. not drama. Yes. Um, so then what would be your final piece of advice for women entrepreneurs based on like something you wish someone would have told you before you got started? Mm. Uh, um, I think so. The, the biggest point of uh, the biggest piece of advice that I can give is uh really to stay focused on, you know, your, your one main product or service or whatever it is. And, and I don't just mean in terms, we talked about, you know, enterprise, being able to you know, start enterprise and move, move down, down market. I don't just mean in, in that sense, but also in terms of, you know, product sets and, or feature sets, whatever it may be. Um, you know, just stay really focused and be careful of all of the distractions and uh, uh, distractions in terms of, you know, you have to listen to your customers, but you also have to make sure like, okay, is this is what they're asking for a distraction from the main business? Like I said, at the beginning of that thought is like, okay, it's either going to be a massive distraction or it's going to be the business. (laughs) You have to choose one. You can't split your team when, when you're early on. So yeah, the biggest piece of advice is really around staying super focused on what it is you're doing, what your goal is, and um, don't let anything or anyone distract you from from that. I get shit done. One of our mottos is fuck 4% because women founded companies currently only bring in around 4% of total business revenues. But we want to change that by having more women building sustainable, scalable companies that generate a large, large cash flow um, so we can scale generational impact. And you've been able to do that. I mean, there's only 2% of women that have ever gotten beyond a million, but there's way more opportunity for your, your company to grow even bigger. So what are you all focused today on at Shoppable to grow to the next level? Yeah, so our, our theme actually for this year is level up. So we are um, making massive investments into into our, our products and our technology to take the business from you know from its current level to you know significant scale. And we're doing that. Um, you know, we recently uh, we just announced uh, a new product called the Shoppable Ad Experience, which lives one click from you know from an ad unit from social media and um, creates a full shoppable ad experience, or sorry, a full shoppable experience all within that landing page. But we also have a um, another product coming out this fall, which I can't quite um, announce just yet, but um, it is um, really going to um, dramatically scale the business to you know, finally be at that stage that we've been waiting for for a very long time where we can um, really be able to make Shoppable available to anyone that wants to use the technology and wants to monetize, um, you know, their company or create another stream of, in- of, of income with it. And there'll be um, an exciting kind of David and Goliath story that comes along with with that product. So um, I would say follow us on social if you want to want to hear what, what's going on with that. And that's a great example of going down market, but you take time. <laughs> and so based on what your focus today is in, in that David and Goliath story that is to come, how can we support you for those listening? Yeah, I mean, right now we, um, I would just say connect, you know, connect with us on um, at Shoppable on across all social medias. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, tons of um opportunities. We partner with, um, you know, direct to consumer brands. Uh, We partner with retailers, um, always looking for more um, great partners that want to leverage the technology um, uh, and anything related to that, but um, lots of, lots of opportunities. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from badass women entrepreneurs weekly, 
make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.